The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Hello, and welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by Jordan Noonan. Since getting to visit many cockpits on family trips as a small child, Jordan Noonan has always dreamed of being a pilot. After being inspired, he remained exposed to aviation by going to air shows, watching planes through the fence at his local airport, as well as getting to go on scenic flights as a small child. By the time he began with the Air Cadets, his career path was solidified, and he began to fly out of the Windsor International Airport. After starting flight training in 2001 during high school, he realized he didn't have enough time to dedicate the attention needed to flight training. In 2006, following a year off after graduating high school, he began flight training full-time. It was during this time that he worked for several FBOs and ground operation companies as a ramp lead, supervisor, and manager. After completing his commercial license in 2014, Jordan started applying to as many float plane operators as he could find online. After being hired by a small company that gives new pilots their start, he moved to Red Lake, Ontario, and began working on the dock for the 2015 float season. In 2016, he began flying a Cessna 180 float plane, and since 2019, Jordan has been the chief pilot and outpost maintenance manager flying a De Havilland Beaver for Canadian Fly and Fishing in Red Lake. Jordan currently holds a Canadian commercial license with the goal of completing his multi-IFR this winter. He hopes to gain a wider variety of float and bush flying experience to reach his goal of becoming a pilot for the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, a role in which he can combine his love of float flying, wildlife conservation, and have the ability to help communities that are under threat of wildfire. I am truly so excited to have him joining me today. Welcome, Jordan. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to finally be here. Yeah, I know we were sort of joking before we got recording that I have had your name on our list of guests for a long time, but there was never sort of an appropriate season for you, so I'm finally (laughs) glad that it's all come together. Yeah, no, I'm glad too. It's been a like I, like I was saying too, I was always wondering if it was actually going to happen or you're just saying that you wanted to have a float pilot on. <laughs> no, I was sincere about it, but again, as I was sort of joking, we can't have you in January. It makes no sense. No, unless we lived in the Southern Hemisphere, then that's summertime. That's summertime, and then I'm probably talking to someone who's like, you know, flying from Maldivia, and so it's yeah. all come together. I'm, I'm happy it's all, uh, yeah, that we're ready to do this. We will jump right on in then if we are so darn excited to finally be doing this. How did you get yeah. your start in aviation? Uh, so pretty much I got my start when I was around three or four. Um, used to go on a lot of family vacations. And at the time, we were always allowed to still go up into the cockpit and see the flight crews, go up here and cruise. So I spent a lot of time, a lot of time as a small kid in the cockpit during cruise phase. Um, we, I grew up not too far from the Windsor airport, so we'd always go out there. Uh, at the time we saw a lot of air shows, so we'd go to a lot of air shows or just go along the fence and plane spots, uh, gone on a few, uh, scenic flights that, uh, my parents took me on, my grandparents took me on. So right from the start, I was always super interested in it. And then, uh, I had a friend when I was in grade school, once we both turned 12, we ended up joining the Air Cadets. And uh, I graduated Air Cadets in 2005, I aged out. 
and so pretty much right from then I uh, got my start working in the flight school in an FBO in Windsor and doing my flight training then full time and right from there was uh, led into a career so I guess you could really say I've been in aviation now for uh, 30 years I guess 32 years. It's a weird way of looking at it, but it's when it's something that you've had from such an early age, and even uh, not necessarily as a career, but sort of a passion and enthusiasm. It's hard to sort of imagine sometimes. This has been something I've been involved in and passionate about for decades. Oh yeah, like going back, I'm sure if I go through my parents' attic, I could probably find 15, 20 different airline plastic wings that the flight crews give out to kids. So it's been a uh, I don't want to say it's been in my blood, but because no one else in my family is really in aviation, I had step-grandparents that were, but no actual relatives that were. So not really sure where it came from, but right from as a young kid, I was always interested. I'm always so envious. I said this before on our show, but of guests that have had the opportunity to actually go visit pilots in a flight deck while flying commercially or are given wings or are given something by the flight crew. I have, no, I don't know how, but that never happened for me. I think I was <laughs> a little too old to still be visiting the flight deck. Um, the rules had changed by the time I was maybe interested in doing that. And I always just think like how fun it would have been to have had that opportunity just to have been in that moment. And I don't know, maybe I would have gotten more passionate sooner had I had that opportunity. Yeah, that's, it's hard to say, but yeah, like especially like I said, I grew up in the time where the times were a little bit different, so you could still do a bunch of that stuff. You could still go through security and watch your family members uh, board the airplane versus just saying bye to them at the security checkpoint. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm 35, and I'd still go to the flight deck if I was allowed, so I don't think that's ever going to change for me. Yeah, no, I was always hoping when I was working with a regional airline that I would have the opportunity to jump seat just because I'd not ever been up there during a flight or even to, to visit aside from work. And I look forward to yeah when I actually do get to sit up front because I think that will just be so much more fun given I've never gotten to do it. Yeah, even um, with a couple of the smaller regional carriers up here, they don't have uh, they don't have any curtains or any cockpit doors. Uh, so, I mean, anywhere you sit, you can still look into the cockpit. So, I mean, the odd time I take one, take a company up here, I still do that as well. Everyone's kind of just sitting there, not paying attention. I lean on, lean on the armrest, looking like half in the aisle, trying to look out, see what's going on, what they're up to. So having always been interested in aviation, it was something you were always around or at least just passionate about. When did you realize that you wanted to be a float pilot specifically? <laughs> Uh, so pretty much the first time I realized I wanted to be a float pilot, um, the ink was still wet on my license, and I took my mom for first flight actually as a licensed private pilot up to see uh, my great aunt up in Sarnia, and so we ended up flying into the Sarnia, the Chris Hatfield Airport, and ended up getting talking with the one of the flight instructors at the time there, who's now the chief pilot or chief flight instructor there. And he was showing me a bunch of float flying videos that he made. It just looked super cool. And it just looked like something I'd be like, yeah, I want to do that. That looks amazing. Uh, so right then I was like, yeah, I might want to try and 
pursue that, might look at it as an option. Because uh, they ended up, I found out they ended up doing flight training as well, but it was, or float training, but it was only for if they had enough people kind of interested, then they'd put the 172 on floats. So I didn't really get into that with them. And it was a quite a, it was a couple of years later when I ended up going to Aurelia to get my float rating. Um, but even then, it was still, I wasn't really 100% sure on it. But um, in 2006, Seven, no, sorry, 2008. I did a, a long cross, long cross country across the northern U.S. and Canada by all modes of transportation. Uh, we took a train from Detroit, uh, Detroit to Seattle, then from Seattle we flew up to Port Angeles in northern Washington, uh, ferry to Vancouver Island, <clears throat> and then that was really my first float flight. Was going from Vancouver Island over to Vancouver and I was with a Harbor Air Turbo Water. And pretty much right from there, I was like actually get, getting to experience it was like, yeah, this is, this is what I wanna do. Like, this is something I can get into. And then at the time working at the flight school and working at the FBO, talking with a bunch, like a lot of the older guys that had worked there, they had a bunch of float time. They had been in the bush for many years and like just their stories always intrigued me. So it was just something that I, Figured that I was going to eventually maybe try try my hand at, and then I ended up just falling in love with it. It is so easy to understand how a float flight with Harbor Air specifically was enough to sort of say, this is it. This is what I want to do. I had different experiences with that airline, and it's just phenomenal. There's something kind of magical about it. I don't it know really if that's is. the right word that they want people to use, but I think <laughs> it's kind of magical. Oh, no, it really is, too. And, like, because I have family in Seattle, so anytime we go visit them, uh, go to Lake Union and always see the Kenmore Air, air aircraft flying as well. So it was always, it always just intrigued me. But then I got a little side note for this, that as well. So um, my second season, so my first season working for, uh, my first season actually flying, but my second season being in float operations up, up here. Uh, the chief pilot at the time and one of the other guys, they were from Sarnia or from, Wallaceburg area. And it turned out that the CFI at Huron Flight Center, or yeah, Huron Flight Center that I was talking to ended up coming up. So I ended up meeting him again many years later. And I told him that story and he just laughed and uh, ended up flying, he ended up working part time with us for two seasons. And now we're just like, we're good friends. And he, because um, <clears throat> they had a satellite base up here. So anytime he comes up, we always hang out, always just go for flights, just always have a great time. So it actually kind of funny that, you know, in 2007, it kind of came full circle, meeting up with them again up in Northern Ontario, kind of almost seemingly randomly. I think there's two parts of that that I love, which is it's those little moments, it's those small conversations that you have with someone in passing that may not mean much to you, may not um, be all that memorable, but for the other person is a pivotal turning point, whether it's sort of showing footage of something you've done or talking about a story you've had and someone will remember it and it might influence the way they do things. I always think that's really nifty with aviation. But again, I mean, you sort of say like, how, how random was it? It's such a small community, the flow community being so small. I mean, you're bound to cross paths with each other, but that's what I think makes it all so much more special is that it's a very small, tight-knit community in an already small, tight-knit community. 
Oh yeah, it, it really is. And so like, I know with Southern Ontario winners, he, all, he, he loves to rub it in that he gets the, A, he gets to fly floats, you know, in no, November, December, January, the water's open. <clears throat> and because he does a lot of freelance stuff, he ends up, sends me videos or pictures of him flying a bunch of customer stuff, or he does ferry flights. So, you know, it could be January and he sent me a video of flying a widgeon and landed on the St. Clair River. So mm -hmm. I could just, yeah. So it's always kind of something that it's just been enjoyable just to know him and just have that, that one little specialness from, you said 2007, all these years later. It's exactly that. And now we sort of talked about how quintessential foot flying is to Canada, specifically Northern Canada. You are not from Northern Canada, you're from Southern Ontario. And yep. so ultimately you had to make that transition at some point, you made that move up to Red Lake from, from Windsor. What was it like to go from, I would say an urban center in Southern Ontario to the sort of more remote Northern Ontario? It was a big change, but like growing up in Southern Ontario, growing up in Essex County, I didn't, I spent, I grew up in the county itself and didn't spend too much time, or I spent a lot of time in the city, but I grew up in the county. I was always more happy in a smaller area or in a smaller community. So uh, once I finally decided that, you know, I want to be a float pilot, I know I'm going to have to go to the bush, I know I'm going to put my time in. It was one of those things where I was just like, you know what, I can do this. I, I read a ton, I read up a ton on it, what life was like there. I knew a lot of people from working in Windsor and working in Waterloo who had spent many years in the bush or in Northern Ontario flying. I knew kind of what I was getting into. Um, I grew up fishing, I grew up in the outdoors. So everything kind of screamed, you'll be fine. So yeah, moving up here, the, the first season was a little bit, was a little bit rough, but come to find that at the time, the large majority of float pilots and large majority of um, other pilots and some other operators on wheels and stuff, they're all from Southern Ontario, uh, from all within the Windsor, Windsor Waterloo section. So, I mean, there's a handful of people that work for a company here that I ended up, that I knew from Waterloo because we were there at the same time. So it really, it was, it was good because there was at least that semi camaraderie. There was, you know, people had, people had come from like the same area. They understood that like, you're from the South and you're in the North. So everyone was really opening, really open and welcome, welcoming to all the new people just because they understood that. Cause they were, you know, in that position the year before or a couple of years before. Everybody went to a lot of the same schools. Everyone kind of knew each other from doing cross countries and flying into those airports. So it was, the, the community itself was not hard to kind of get into, but the life itself was a little bit of a challenge at first to get used to. But after, after my first season, um, I left in September and by December, I had moved back to Red Lake to be here permanently. So it was kind of one of those, like I left and I was like, nope, I'm not happy being back in an urban area. I'm not happy being back in a city. I like, I just feel more comfortable being in the North and that's where I want to be. That's where I know I have 
I have work and I'm, I'm going to have steady work and I'm going to have fun doing that work. I think, yeah, that's one of those things that for aviation, a lot of these aviation jobs, you, you might have to move somewhere else, but it's made a little bit easier by the fact that there's probably by virtue of you having to move there for a flying job, there's already a flying community that's there. And it's just sort of a matter of either getting to meet everyone or connecting with people that you used to know. That's one thing I think is really um, special with aviation is that you can move to a city that you just had to look up on a map, but you're going to know people there, or if not, you're going to know people there in at least a couple weeks. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was the same. Like the first, um, so the first, Two or three weeks when uh, when I first came up here in 2015, we were spent just getting all the camps open for the company I work for, and so we were in the bush a lot. But then after that, once the season kind of got going and guests started showing up, we ended up starting to meet more people in the aviation community, and then from there it kind of just blossomed everywhere. And by the end, so the company I work for, we had three dock hands. And by the end of that season, all three of us had jobs for the next year. Uh, one of the guys actually ended up starting that fall at the company as we worked for the next year. So mm -hmm. like, yeah, the biggest thing was just hanging out with everyone else in the community, you know, going to fish fries, just going to bonfires, going like on your day off, going down to other docks and talking to people and it, the networking was super easy and it just made it that much more enjoyable being that far from home. Now you started off working as a dock hand. Can you expand a little bit more about that role and kind of the the day-to-day -day of what it's like to be a dock hand? Yeah, so like I said, so my first season was 2015. Um, I ended up seeing an ad online and it was very nondescript. It was like two sentences. But at that time, I'd already sent out, I sent out as many resumes, I sent out all the resumes I could to any and all the float operators in Canada. <clears throat> and a lot of rejections, not or a lot of nothing back. And there's just a job ad for Dockhand at Red Lake. It's like email for more information. So I threw my email out there and that was on Easter weekend. And by the following or that Thursday, I had the job. So <clears throat> ended up coming up here for the beginning of May. Uh, and then, um, yeah, so kind of got the lay of the land, understood or got our orientation on what the job is going to entail and, you know, what the job is going to be like, the airplane that we we're going to be, that the company had. So from the start, it was pretty much my first night or my first full day in Red Lake. Uh, the owner was just like, yep, keep your bags packed. We're going out to the bush. So right from there, we ended up uh, not knowing the other two guys I worked with going out, opening cabins. So involved, so it pretty much involved taking down a bunch of plywood off the windows from the wintertime, flipping boats, uh, testing motors, putting motors on the boats, cleaning all the cabins cutting firewood, getting everything ready for the guests to show up for the uh, May long weekend is that's the start of the season or start of the guests showing up. And then um, <clears throat> the rest of the season was having to go out, like cut grass or do other camp chores, stuff like that. Uh, 
dealing with gas loading bags on and off the airplane, um, getting groceries, getting beer, pretty much just running around doing everything you got to do to keep the operation going. Just a lot of hard work, a lot of building, plumbing, some electrical stuff, uh, small motor maintenance, just all just pretty much had to be a jack of all trades. And that's one thing that always sort of intimidates me about going the float route is that I, I think I have what it takes to be a float pilot. I don't know if I have what it takes to be a dock hand. <laughs> and honestly, a lot of people feel that way, but they just kind of, you just kind of try it and go from there. Um, I'm, I've had, I've worked with a lot of guys or a lot of people that have had no background in anything except for flying that's her their only skill i guess you could say for loose term and they've they've had to learn everything on the fly their first season up here and you know they end up being some of the better people that i've worked with or seen in this industry just learned it and just kind of taking a grasp for it taking a grasp at it and just somehow it just works out so being intimidated about it because even I was intimidated but the biggest thing was just give it a shot and if it doesn't work out then at least say no for sure. Now what was it like to finally get that first float flying job? <clears throat> uh, so, uh, so how I got it I ended up going to going to a company picnic or a company barbecue I guess I just kind of meet actually like meeting the owner because I knew a bunch of the pilots. I didn't really know the ops manager. I didn't know the owner. But just spending the afternoon with them. Um, and then at the end of the season, I ended up leaving. And I wasn't even I wasn't even in Thunder Bay yet. And I had an email from the chief pilot saying I got their off me the position to fly their uh, 180 the next year. And just getting that, just seeing that being like, oh my God, I actually like I actually got a job flying for money. Someone's actually giving me a chance to be <laughs> actually going to give me a chance to be a commercial pilot to actually put everything I've learned to use was at that time was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Like I couldn't, I couldn't believe that after almost 10 years of trying to get my commercial license and work in 10, 15 years working in aviation, I was actually getting that chance mm. to do it. It was, it was just incredible. I know you are uh, an avid listener of the show, so you'll probably remember our guest, Marielle, talking about this as well, that she was someone who started out in aviation relatively young, and it just took her longer than she ever thought it was going to take to actually be working in an aviation role. So the fact that there were all these hurdles, these added challenges that it just took that much time and how many different opportunities did you maybe encounter where you could have sort of said, look, this isn't working, I'm going to leave it. To finally be in that moment where you're being offered that first line job, I cannot wait. Yeah, it was, like I said, so I started, uh, so I ended up getting off, so I started my flight training in 2006 full-time after I graduated high school. I took a year off in 2005. Um, and then it was, uh, it was about a month or so after I started my flight training, I got an email or a phone call, sorry, from the office manager at the time of the FBO asking if I wanted the job. 
So I said, yeah, sure. Cause then I could be at the airport full time. Then I can actually, you know, like do my flight training from there. Um, so I ended up knocking out my private in a year. And then at the time, or in a year, I got a lot of my commercial done. And then, uh, then I just got too, I want to say too busy, but I got too busy on the FBO side being a ramp lead and all that stuff. To, so I kind of slowed my commercial training. And then uh, in 2012, I got a better offer to go to Waterloo to be the the FBO manager at the at the FBO manager at the one company there that was also owned by the flight school. So it was actually more so it worked out as well because then I was still attached to a flight school. Um so in 20 so then at the end of 2014 I finally got it done. I took about a year off from flying in, in 2012, 2013. And then I was just like, you know what, I'm not really happy doing this anymore there's uh <clears throat> it's just yeah i just wasn't happy i was the fbo manager there and i was also working part-time for a third-party handler for a mainline carrier and i was a ramp lead there and it's just there's way too much going on i just was like you know what i just i just got to get this done i'm done messing around so i hammered the last 15 20 hours out and so, yeah, so it was uh, December of 2014, I got it signed off. And then uh, pretty much the start of 2015, I just started sending out resumes and the rest was kind of history. I think we focus so much in aviation on the person that we know that went from never having done a walk around before to multi-IFR in a year, in 18 months. And those are incredible people who should be so rightfully proud of the hard work that they put in to getting to that point. There is a whole other group of pilots that maybe take two, three years to get it done. And then there's another, <coughs> then there's another club, which is the club that you and I are part of, which are the ones that take five plus years. And we're not necessarily always as vocal about our story because you feel some sort of way about sharing that with other people. That it took you this much more time or you had to work at it a little bit more that it didn't maybe come to you the way it did for other people and yeah. i remember being in the depths of despair about my commercial and how long it had taken me and i remember i was chatting with you about it and you sort of said like get over yourself with respect laura get over <laughs> yourself other people have worked that much harder and here's my logbook and you can see it took me this long to get my commercial you can still do it. So yeah. I, I appreciate you sharing that story because I know how much of a difference it made to me when my flight training was really, really still going. And I was at a kind of a, a point, a sort of a make or break point. So if any of our listeners are sort of in a similar <laughs> point, that story really resonated with me. And hey, if, if the two of us can become commercial pilots. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that it. I'm glad I had that effect because the one thing I hate to see is, you know, people who are passionate in this industry trying to get their license done, but just feel so discouraged because they're looking at people in the college program or university program that are, you know, it's set out, you know, three years, four years commercial IFR with an instructor rating and a frozen ATPL. And yeah, like you said, like there's other people like us who have just taken 
for whatever reasons just took extra long and they just just they seem to get discouraged and I just hate seeing that especially if they have the passion for it well I appreciated it then and I appreciate it now because uh, now I'm closer to being done but it would make a big difference <laughs> yeah. knowing that hey that five years that it took you rather four years that it took you to get your commercial <laughs> you're still ahead of the game you haven't yeah. you still got some fight left in you yeah and I mean like in doing that like I said it was at the time, just my position in the companies I was working for. So I don't want to say that, you know, I was getting discouraged by it because I was still having a lot of fun in aviation. I was still meeting a ton of great people. I had people, you know, being like, once you get it done, like, come talk to me. I can get you a job. I know people. So it, there was always, there was always that push for me. It was never just like, ah, oh, like this is taking me a little bit longer. I don't know if I want to do it. Like I always had somebody in my ear pushing me plus being you know on the ramp every day talking with corporate guys talking with um airline pilots just talking with weekend warriors anybody it, it still gave me that drive so i never really i got discouraged but it was never really like oh i'm never gonna have this happen mm -hmm. like i'm gonna make this happen there's enough people out there i met there's enough people out there rooting for me so how is the world of float flying different as compared to sort of land plane flying at the 703-704 level? Uh, well, the one big obvious difference is that we operate on water versus wheels. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> but um, for 703 stuff, or, uh, there's not a lot of 704, or I'm sure there is. I don't know too many 704 operators on floats, but, uh, but for 703 stuff, the some of the bigger differences, you know, everyone's usually limited to day VFR versus uh, other companies that are IFR or can operate at night. We're pretty much limited to sun up, sundown, and VFR weather. So on the nice days, the nice days we're working equally as hard as the guys flying out of the airport. Uh, but on those, those extra cup of coffee mornings or extra cup of coffee days, we can sit back, we can relax a little bit um, while they're still going. But the, I, but at that, there's a flip side to that, which once the weather does turn, then we got to work that extra bit harder or that extra bit longer to um, to make up what we missed. Um, and then going back to, you know, working sun up to sundown versus like, or for day VFR operation, you know, midsummer, the sun's starting to come up at, you know, 4.45 in the morning. So we're planning our day. I'm trying to get off the dock by 4.40, 4.35 to get my run up done, have the engine warmed up. So when it does actually take over to legal daylight, I'm on the step or I'm off the water. And on some of those longer days, and that's the other nice thing too, on those bad weather days, if it does clear, we do have, you know, sun till eight, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, legal daylight. So we're, uh, we're going till then as well. <clears throat> so that's some of the bigger differences where, you know, the guys flying out of the airport, they, you know, they got a couple extra airplanes or they only, or they can fly in that IFR stuff. So their, their day is done at, you know, two or three, they started at eight. Meanwhile, if it doesn't clear till two or three, we're flying until flying till dark, essentially. So there's that's the biggest 
difference. And that's kind of the, um, the more glaring downside or upside is that if we start at sunrise and you know it's not an overly busy day, we can be done by noon, two o'clock in the afternoon and have a higher day to hang out, to relax versus those guys who might start a little bit later in the day just because they have that option to fly IFR or have that option to fly night. So they can kind of push their start time that they're still flying well past everyone else's end day. I mean, I'm, I've always known the course VFS or day VFR is kind of what you need for float flying. I don't think I'd actually connected the dots of, oh, those can be really, really long days, especially the more, the more north you go. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, before the... Before they, they talked, before transfer talked about actually uh, changing the duty time regs and stuff like that, we were able to do, you know, there's some days you, it was a 14 hour duty day and you got 13 hours, some days of being in the airplane or being around the airplane, um, you know, or you had some, some operations manuals, some companies have the ability to extend the day to 15 hours or split their days. So if you split the day, you know, it, it can be a long, long day, long, yeah. but at the same time, it's, it's kind of what you expect flying floats. Cause you know, you only have, um, anywhere between four and six months to do your work. So it's, it's not, you're not expected. It's just kind of unwritten that you're going to have long days, just, uh, long days. And it's just, that is what it is. But at the end too, you look back and you're like, you know what? I had a great time doing it. It was worth it. And for, for a lot of people, they just, you know, they take six months off in the winter and just enjoy to kind of recoup. But then there's other guys too that they'll either change airplanes over the wheels and then they go back to flying in the winter time. But then it's in the winter time, you know, their, their pace is a little bit changed as well. So it's not as hard, but it's still not easy work in the winter up here. Presently, you work as the chief pilot of Canadian Fly and Fishing. How did you find your way to this role? Uh, so I joined, so I joined uh, Canadian Fly and Fishing in late 2018. Uh, the company ended up getting purchased in 2017 by a young, by a young guy from uh, Southern Ontario. And at the time, the, comp the previous company I was working for, we did all their flying. They did um, they didn't have an, uh, an OC. They only had a private airplane. So we did all their guest flying. So I ended up getting to know him a little bit. And then in the spring of 2018, I ended up doing some contract work, helping them uh, build a dock and stuff to get, because they were looking at getting an OC put in place. Uh, so yeah, in mid 2018, I ended up uh, talking with him and ended up, uh, ended up coming on board kind of it was still kind of on the ground level uh so the for the rest of the 2018 season I ended up flying there uh down Bushhawk uh, and then over the winter uh, we ended up buying a beaver and so the 2019 season I already had uh, I already had about 50 60 hours on a beaver from previous time yeah so that ended up working out good because then I was still at the time I was still current there wasn't really a whole lot of training or anything that had to get done uh so the 20 the spring of early 
winter of 2019, ended up going to Thunder Bay doing the chief pilot exam or interview, I should say. And then uh, from then on, we got the OC going. I so I I've been with him right from the start of uh, being a 703 operator. Um, and like I said, with the previous company I was with, uh, flying their 180, I was also in charge of a lot of the maintenance on the on their outpost camps. And so uh, <clears throat> the owner of Canadian saw that and he knew that I had I had all that ability and one of his partners as well I've known from a previous few years back and he knew I had not not construction experience but I had um I had building experience I had plumbing experience I had electrical I had all kinds of stuff just from growing up my background growing up um so they saw me as a valuable asset and they uh they definitely wanted me on board and you know getting offered a chief pilot spot after essentially being a commercial pilot being a float pilot for three seasons was uh kind of a no-brainer <laughs> great leap i mean the beaver was one of this has always been a favorite of mine it's been an airplane i always had on my bucket list to fly mm -hmm. so it was uh yeah it was one of those where i was just like yep you know what <clears throat> i'm gonna take this jump it's gonna be a good going to be a good progression for my career it's going to help me going to help me i'll be able to you know be in the company from the from the ground up and kind of help build it the way that i want to see it be built especially being in aviation for like i said full time since 2006 like i knew the the ground operations side i knew a lot of and so i was able to help them develop a lot of that stuff and then you know doing working on cabins and working all that stuff in the bush for the previous three and a half seasons also really helped to be able to set everything up the way that we wanted to be set up to run the way we wanted to run and not have to worry about <clears throat> trying to find a bunch of other people with those experiences with those backgrounds to also set it up so so it sounds like it was a little bit of sort of right place at the right time, but the other part was sort of, the other part with luck is about being ready to take that that opportunity as it presents itself. And as you sort of mentioned, uh, the advice our guest Nisha had given of not to say no to yourself in different opportunities for training. It's exactly that background of having a little bit of sort of construction, a little bit of sort of small engines and motors. Um, stuff related to electrical that it can all come together to make you this really unique candidate for opportunities like this and so when you have employers that can see this guy can't necessarily do it all but he can at least get us started or at least point us in the right direction to move some of these things forward it sounds like you were yeah kind of the ideal candidate to apply for that yeah and just going back a little bit like being a float pilot or like getting at my start as being or as a float pilot and being you know this is something i want to pursue from the start, like a lot of people, you know, their goal is, you know, to go to Harbor Air or to go to MNR or go to the Maldives or something like that to fly for a bigger company or something like that. Then there's a, after you're in it, there's some people that are like, yeah, all right, I still want to follow that career path and try to make that my end goal. 
and there's some people that are like, nope, you know what? I gave it a shot. I don't like it. And there's some, some odd people that just, they just, uh, there's some odd people that just find that this, that this particular skill set that they've, you know, that they've got the last two years is something that they really end up falling in love with. It's a part of the industry that not a lot of people want to do anymore. And so the people that stay in it are, like I said, the odd ones out, like I am, who, you know, originally had a goal to go somewhere or to, to try to really progress their career, then end up taking a little offshoot of it and making making their career better or getting more opportunities staying in the North, staying in um, customer service, outdoors, outfitter type role while float flying. And yeah, like then the, the opportunities from there just kind of are almost endless because everyone knows each other and <clears throat> everyone just, yeah, like there's always there's always room. There's always a way to progress staying in this niche market side of the industry. You sort of touched on all the different parts of your background that maybe made sense for you in terms of coming into the chief pilot role, but what are some of the duties of the chief pilot and sort of what do they oversee? Uh, yeah. So some of the, uh, so the duties of a chief pilot for a float operator are, they're pretty much the same as a wheel-based land operator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got to keep track of pilot training, you got to keep track of the duty times, license validities, create and administer training programs. Um, you got to work with other, um, other management departments or all the other departments. Um, you got to know company SOPs, you got to know the, all the different manuals, you got to know your airplane got to work with either your ramp staff or your ground crew or your dock hands. Um, same, you got to like work with your pilots, you got to know their abilities. Uh, so really be an operator, like a float operator, chief pilot versus a land plane operator, chief pilot. There's a lot of the similarity or a lot of the roles are the same. Uh, so it's really not that many differences. Um, but for myself, because for myself, we only have the one airplane and it's only myself as the pilot. It's a, quite a bit easier because I only have myself to look after. So I only have to be up on my licenses. I have to be up on all my training. Um, and that's it. Like, so, and like I say, starting from the beginning, being the chief pilot, I end up having to create all the training programs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of worked out because like I said, having one airplane, having one pilot, it's, it makes it a lot easier being single pilot, single airplane chief pilot. Yeah. It's, um, there's, I have a lot less stress than other friends who are chief pilots or training captains or stuff like that in 703 land or water or 704 operations. It's, uh, I don't envy them being in the same position as I am or having the same title as I do. Cause like I said, it's uh, one person is a lot less stressed than having many people to look after her. No, I'm hearing you say that. And I'm mindful of the episode of the office where the character Kelly is being asked <laughs> the whole 
And she says, like, oh, I've been managing my team. It's like, isn't your team just you? And her response is, well, yes, but I am not easy to manage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes I can be a handful as well. I'm not, I'm not as dramatic, but I can be a handful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll let you say you're not that dramatic. We'll, we'll just move on then. Yeah. <laughs> now, what are you looking for in a flow pilot candidate who's going through the hiring process or someone that's applying? What are the key things that you're looking for? <laughs> Uh, so my biggest things that I look for in any prospective candidate is, you know, their willingness to learn, uh, their work ethic. Uh, those are like, those are the two biggest ones because a lot of the stuff we do can be easily taught or if people are having a hard time with it or their physical ability is limiting them doing that job, there's still other people around that can help them. So, um, so, you know, having, having a background with like small motors or construction or building stuff like that, it's, I'm not too concerned about having someone with that background, because like I said, it's easily taught. Um, it's a lot of it's not overly complicated, so it's not a big one. Yeah. So willingness to learn work ethic and just not being of themselves as a lot of us pilots do being like well i'm i got a commercial license so i don't feel i need to be doing this like we're all we're all doing the same job mm -hmm. so as long as everyone's able to understand that and just work together as a team that's that's a huge thing for me because i've had i've worked with people who are like that who you know, we're like, well, I got my commercial, I have a commercial multi-IFR and a float rating, so I'm going to sit back and let the guy who, or the, the, the other, the other co-worker with, you know, 230 hours do all this crappy stuff, and I'm going to sit back and not do anything unless I decide I'm going to do it. Like, that, for me, no pun intended, doesn't fly. It's, um, as long as you're willing to get your hands dirty and try your hardest every day, then that's that's what I want to see. That's what I want. That's what I want with as a coworker and as an employer. Yeah, no, I'm mindful as well. I remember hearing a, a hiring manager in aviation say, "I can like anyone can fly a plane. I can teach you to fly a plane. I can't teach you how to be a nice person. If you have a big issue with a personality or have a real chip on your shoulder." I'd like to say that those pilots don't go very far or don't or will sort of bleed themselves out. That's not always the case, but it's a group of people where everyone knows how much hard work goes into it. And so there's sort of an unspoken understanding of the professionalism you need to have for aviation roles of all kinds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and, and I find the people who are like in our situation, it took a little bit longer or they went through a private career college versus going to a college university program. Um, I feel when they, they get a job in the industry, they're a little bit more humbled by it. They're not expecting everything to be given to them. They're not expecting to be sit left seat in a matter of weeks versus, versus, versus uh, college or university programs. Like I'm not, I'm not calling anybody out. That's just from my experience. I've I've seen that more so with standalone pilots seem to have a little bit of better grasp on 
what it takes to get the job done and how to be a slightly better team player. And we're just so excited to be there. We don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how did or did not having a mentor impact your start in aviation? Uh, so I really didn't have a mentor per se in the normal sense. Um, throughout my flight training, I had a ton of people who always shared stories and their own experiences. Um, there's a couple instructors that I had that, you know, occasionally pushed me along the way, but it's never like always constantly on me being like, yep, you got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. But just whenever I started to get a little bit stagnant, I'd have someone kind of just like push me a little bit. Um, but I had this, I had one instructor, I flew with a couple of times and he was more of a coworker than anything. And before we started recording, I was talking about him. Um, so he was a former Hungarian fighter pilot that came to Canada after he had a uh, mid-air collision with his wingman in a MiG-21. Um, so they become a flight instructor in Windsor and he was one of those instructors that either you loved him as an instructor or you absolutely hated him. There was no middle ground. It was more so because he had that military background and he had that military style of doing stuff. So he was always, so he was always on you, but he was on you in a way to make you better. Mm -hmm. But a lot of, but the way he came off, especially, you know, coming from Hungary, a lot of people didn't understand his way of teaching things or didn't quite accept how he would do stuff. But, you know, if it was, you know, a marginal VFR day, he'd be like, nope, we're going to go. Like, if you're going to be a commercial pilot, you got it. You're going to end up flying in this stuff learn it let's go like we're just gonna go um airbnb days you know like you're looking out you're like well you know it's not really that great he's like is it legal weather yep all right we're gonna go like he was just one of those that if you got along with him he made you a better pilot um and yeah that was i honestly if i would say i had a mentor it would be him in that type of sense, but like I said, it was more so of a coworker than anything. So it never really it was he was always just like pushing when he saw I was not doing great. Um but throughout but like anybody that would share stories, I always just absorbed and tried to learn as much knowledge or get as much knowledge from them as I could. So like overall I didn't have mentors. I just had people who were willing to share their experiences and hope you learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when I started flying floats, the biggest thing, the biggest thing I got from my first employer was listen to what the old guys have to say. You know, it's either the older generation of bush class that are still flying guys that have three, four years experience flying or retired guys like <clears throat> they have something to say about a situation or something in the bush listen because it's not a one-off thing they've experienced it their mentors or their coworkers in the past have experienced like it's there's been many people who have experienced the same thing and if you could pick up 
you pick up any knowledge off of that, it's going to help you because you're somehow, some way, somewhere, you're going to find yourself in that situation. So, yeah, biggest thing is just if you don't have a mentor, just listen to as many people, listen to as many people with stories that you can and try to learn from those is really my, my view on it. And I think when I ask guests about mentors, I don't know always mean someone that was sort of officially assigned to you as part of the very formal mentorship program. It can be a peer mentor. It can be someone just sort of in your aviation sphere that was sort of sharing stories with you and trying to sort of encourage you and keep going or point you in the right direction. It doesn't always need to be a very formal thing. And in no. fact, I think, as you sort of said, just listening to sort of different pilots share stories. Pilots love to talk. We all love to talk. We all have a hundred stories and we all tell them all, all oh, yeah. again and again. And there is something about that sort of that hangar talk, that just general sort of sharing its knowledge or experiences amongst pilots that is still a great avenue to sort of hear about different tips and tricks, suggestions of one studying resource versus another. There is a lot to be said just by being around other aviators uh, for that kind of sort of community and support without it being really a formal thing at all. Yeah, and I mean, up here, um, like I work at, I work at the Red Lake Airport in the wintertime, uh, plowing snow, and all the, all the guys I work with here, they're all former pilots, um, either commercial operators or private licenses. Uh, and there's a couple of guys that like the airport manager and then uh, one of the guys that just retired, they both work for the same company. Um, they, they both worked together at the same company back in, in the 90s and part of the 80s and stuff. And, you know, on a weekend, Saturday, Sunday morning, or we're having our safety meeting briefings during the week, you know, we'll go through two pots of coffee and they're just talking about stuff that happened, you know, back then, flying the beach or flying the beaver, flying the otter, flying the islander, flying the trilander, like just their wealth of knowledge and this, their stories are just incredible. <clears throat> and like, yeah, and the one guy, like he... Again, not not a mentor, but just somebody who I enjoy just sitting having coffee with and just listening to his stories and like the amount of stories that he has and the wealth of knowledge he has, either in aviation or in the bush, is just incredible. So once you get talking to somebody, you never know where it's gonna go or what you're gonna learn from them. Now, clearly this guy that you have flown with over the years has gotten to be sort of a part of your aviation journey by just being someone that you generally like. And I, I'm going to sort of go so far as to say look up to. I'm wondering who is someone in aviation you admire and why maybe outside of this other guy? Uh, so let's say the one other person that I really look up to in aviation um, is the, what, the other gentleman I just spoke of uh, who just retired here from the airport. Uh, his name's Joe. Um, just yeah like he's been flying he's been flying in northern Ontario for years and years he was chief pilot at one company like, like I said he's got a ton of bush experience like he was flying 180s and beavers beaches Norsemans islanders just the wealth of knowledge different stuff he was flying different experience that he has flying those things 
it's just incredible. And honestly, like he's in his seventies, he's still very active. Like he, him and his wife are the sweetest people and they just love sharing their stories of living in the North. They're both from Southern Ontario. They met up here and honestly, he's for people in Northern Ontario that I met or pilots that I met up here, he's honestly one person that, you know, in another 35 years, I wish I could aspire to be like, he's just an amazing person. Um, you know, there's days where he's got a background in geology. And so we got a couple exposed esters at the airport and we've gone out for several hours. He's gone over different rock formations or different geological points that you can actually physically see it over time in the rock from hundreds of thousands of years ago or from the last ice age like just his wealth of knowledge and his his love of sharing all that knowledge no matter what it is is just incredible and it's yeah he's just an overall great person that i've never flown with but just hearing his stories and his experiences just make me want to be a better pilot make me want to experience all that bush flying has to offer up here even though it's no longer the heyday of bush flying like it used to be but just to try to experience as much as possible i'll say how wonderful it is for you to have so many different people you can look up to like that and yeah there's something to be said for having a person that it's someone you admire, but someone that you know, and further the idea of like, mm -hmm. I not only do I admire you, if there was a way that I can emulate you or be very similar, or have other people think of me the same <laughs> way. Um, that's always there's something about those specific types of inspirations that make all the difference. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like I said, like, he's all anytime we work together, like any of our shifts overlap, like he's always just like, he always like either brings in some old newspaper clipping or a book or just always show something um i think one of the stories that he told that like is one of his highlights of his career that i think is just amazing is that they him and an ame at the time who was also a commercial pilot they ended up going to northern saskatchewan to pick up a norseman that had been the wings had been destroyed on the fabric was all destroyed and they spent two weeks in northern saskatchewan with just the 180 load of stuff, fixing all the stitching and all the ribbing on this Norseman mm. to get it back to Airworthy to fly it back to Red Lake. Just, yeah, just the two of them did everything, all the work on it. And then um, the AME, he, his only stipulation to go was, you know, if he got to fly the airplane and if it was with Joe. Mm. If Joe didn't go, he wasn't gonna go. So it was, yeah, and like they made a huge video about it. They made, they have a big album and yeah, his wife just loves to show it off. He loves to tell that story. And it's, it's great. Cause it's honestly like looking back going, you know, that's something that no one ever did again that no one's going to get to experience. And just for him to be so proud of that, it's just like, I wish in my 30, 35 plus career year career flying at his age is wish I have something a at least one story like that to just be so proud is almost like your crowning achievement 
we touched on the fact throughout the episode that you are clearly a very outdoorsy person and by virtue of working with Canadian fly and fishing, you must inherently like fishing. But what are some activities you enjoy outside of aviation and outside of fishing? Uh, so... Or is that really it? Did I just sort of... No, 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 there's... <laughs> no, so, um, so outside of aviation and fishing, um, during the summer, I don't get... Like, I get to spend a lot of time outdoors inherently just because of my job. Um, but as for being out in the outdoors outside of work, it's, uh, I love it. I enjoy it, but I don't get out as much as I'd like. Um, we, tr we try to get out, we try to take the dog out for hikes or just go out to the bush, go for, um, yeah, just try to enjoy the bush as much as we can, but usually it's maybe once a week, um, until the until the season's done or the season starts to slow down, uh, hunting is a big, another big, big part of my life. We, because uh, we do also run hunts as well as uh, as fishing. So, outs, yeah, like hunting is just a huge aspect of my life. Um, like all, like all parts of it. Like conservation of animals is or the conservation of wildlife, the conservation of our natural resources is a huge thing, and. You know, like I have no, I have no quarrels, even though I do complain about it. But overall, I know, like I don't have any complaints about the price of licenses or the price of stuff like that, because I know that money is going to help wildlife mm -hmm. conservation in Ontario and wildlife conservation across the globe is something I really think we need to act more on. And like I said, so that being that being part of it is like a huge, huge part of my life. Like I can, yeah, I spend a lot of my time either researching about fishing or research about hunting. Um, you know, we do, we do enjoy camping. We do enjoy hiking, but a lot of my time spent in the bush is, or in the, out, I guess a lot of my time in the outdoors is spent fishing or hunting really. I am, uh, I don't think it's a secret to our listeners that I am a little suburban lady and <laughs> I have been fishing. I've never been hunting, but I can see the appeal. And I, as someone that also is very mindful of sort of the wildlife conservation in just Ontario and across Canada, um, it does make me feel a little bit better knowing that when people are going out hunting uh, or fishing, that those money from those licenses does go towards larger population control and um, conservation efforts. I understand why there needs to be more tags one year versus another. Ideally, I would just let everyone run free, but I understand, I know that that's not. <laughs> yeah, that's no, not running, <laughs> yeah, running free would be a very bad thing for, for wildlife conservation. Yeah, and, um, and that's yeah. why I can, as someone yeah, that's yeah. very <laughs> pro-animal conservation and population control, mindful that there needs to be the other part of it too in order for the overall sort of greater good of the of the animal species yeah and also too i mean you know you're it's kind of cliche to say but it's true you know fishing and hunting you're getting free wild natural meat it's you know in a lot of ways it's a lot healthier so like the meat's a lot leaner it's there's more protein in it it's just and the way the food prices are going, it just almost makes sense nowadays. Um, we were very fortunate this fall. Um, and so we managed to spend very little on 
grocery or on grocery store meat versus anything else. Um, so, you know, like just having, being able to have your freezer full and not worry about the cost of the food. And just to know that, you know, you were, you were with that animal from the start of the harvest until it hits your table is, it's something that a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people's stuff people don't grasp, but it's, it's very humbling. It makes you, I don't know, to me and to a lot of my friends, you know, it makes you feel more in touch with where mm-hmm. your food comes from. And it's, and honestly, it's a great way to just get outside and enjoy the outdoors. Um, especially like if you're hunting or you're fishing, you know, you're usually quiet or you're in areas that a lot of people don't go. So you're going to see more wildlife. You're going to see more things. Um, like this last year we were out, we were on the river by the float base fishing and my wife and I, we've seen a, um, a pine marten come out of the tree, run down the shore, run mm-hmm. into the water and then run out of the water with a fish in its mouth. Like you never see that anywhere else. You never see stuff like the same. Like a pine marten, let alone one actively hunting, is a whole. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I've seen pine birds. Yeah, I've seen pine birds around, but I've never actually seen one actively hunting. Um, and the same. Like this year, um, sitting out on a big esker, and I had two wolves come within a hundred yards of me and just kind of see me there and kind of just carry on about their day and. Versus, you know, someone else who just goes for a little hike off a trail somewhere. You're not, you're never going to see that. So I don't know. I've, it's being, just being on the outdoors, engaged in outdoor activities, like hunting and fishing, you're just going to see a lot more that nature has to offer versus just, you know, going to an urban park or just going to some conservation area and just kind of hiking the set out trail there. So it's definitely something that is very enjoyable, even just for the wildlife viewing aspect. Now, what advice would you have for someone considering a career in float flying? Um, so touching back, like I said, to a previous guest, just the biggest advice is just say, don't say no to yourself. If it's, if you have any, you have any inclining or any thought about wanting to do a float rating, regardless of it's to make you a better pilot or because you think it's fun or just something to add to your logbook just just go for it just do it um nowhere does it say once you have a float rating that you have to be a float a commercial float pilot that you have to do this as a career you know i know lots of people who went did it and that's it they got seven hours maybe 15 hours and they're like yep nope i checked it off i'm good i just wanted to do it so yeah the biggest thing i say is just just go for it do it enjoy it um when I, when I originally did it, I found that it definitely improved my skills on wheels. Um, <clears throat> so it will make you a better pilot. Like the biggest thing, the biggest thing I found that made it better was my landings. I just treated every landing as like a glassy water landing, set it up with a 200 foot, a 200 foot a minute descent at this power setting. And just every time just grease it on the runway. So it just, if all you want to do is try to make yourself better and just gain experience, that's one of the best ways to do it. And just go do it. And you never know you might actually get hooked and want to do it as a career. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career so far? <laughs> this one, I had a really hard time um, 
coming up with one. Uh, there's been, I've had so many, I've had so much fun. I've had so many experiences. I met so many great people over the last, you know, 16 years now in this industry. Um, you know, everything from host and hang, like our, the FBOs that I work for host and hangar parties after air shows or on like the Saturday night of an air show and just watching everyone kind of get to let loose and just go absolutely insane to, you know, having just meeting incredible people, just hanging around fires up here after a long weekend of, especially weekends are our busiest period. So after a long weekend of float flying, it's, yeah, it's, there's just so many, but the one that, the one I really focused on with this one, because it still makes me laugh to this day, and I still can't believe that this actually happened to me. Um, <clears throat> so just going to preface it by saying, like, customer service is, like, a huge, huge aspect of my career. Like, it's all, like, from the start, I've always been focused on customer service, especially working the FBOs, dealing with celebrities and multi-million dollar jets and all this stuff. It's always been something that's been really, really focused, that I've always really focused on. So I treat everybody the same. You show up in a 172 or you show up in a G5, you're going to get a red carpet. You're going to, like, I'm going to bust my butt to make sure you get whatever you need. So this one, I was still in Windsor at the time. And it was a Sunday night and everyone, a bunch of people, a bunch of the guys I worked with got time off uh, because there was a concert at the amphitheater at St. Clair College. A bunch of the guys went to go see Bare Naked Ladies play. And so it was a Sunday afternoon and I'm the only one at the FBO. It's a quiet day and <clears throat> just 206 on Amphib show up. So the guy, so the pilot called looking for fuel. I go over, I fuel it, and as I'm fueling it, I notice he's got a flat nose gear or a flat nose wheel on the amphibs. I point it out to him, and he's like, all right, like, what can we do? I'm like, well, let's go back to the FBO, take care of your fuel bill, and I'll call the, uh, the AMO on the field, see if they got anybody they can send in to go from there. I'm like, I, I can't really guarantee anything. It's a Sunday, but I'll do everything I can. So... Go back to the FBO, we're figuring stuff out. Um, he ended up having, he wanted to go back to the terminal, uh, go back over to the airplane because he's on the other side of the apron. And so take him over to the truck and I can't figure out why the security guard at the restricted areas getting all flustered and all, all blushing and everything, asking if he, she could take a picture with this guy. And I'm like, I, I don't understand what's going on here. So just continue on. I'm like, oh, that's weird. So continue on. He goes in the term, or we both go in the terminal. Some people and the other people that were, that were working at the airport, getting their photos with them, or just like getting all excited. Uh, so we go back to the FBO, and I'm calling, I'm calling, trying to get a hold of one of the mechanics to come out. And I'm like, well, his company card was had this name on it, or had this company name on it. So I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna Google it. It turned out to be Ed Robertson and the Bare Naked Ladies. I had no idea, like I knew their music, I knew who they were. I had no idea who he actually was to see him in person. And like to this day, it still just makes me laugh because I was like, 
everyone's swooning over him. Everyone's all getting all gushy. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm just doing my job. I have no idea who this guy is, but I'm just going to do my job like normal. And guaranteed to this day, he has no idea that I didn't even know who he was and just doing my job as normal. But just looking back on it, it was one of the one of the more funnier moments, more memorable moments that I've had going, you know, I, I busted my butt to help this guy who was stranded on a Sunday afternoon in Windsor, not knowing that he's actually this countrywide famous artist, world famous artist. Like, yeah, it's just absolutely crazy. Is That's one of the more memorable moments I've had. Um, and the only, and there, I had one other one that was, not so much as memorable, but I'm kind of taken aback by it. Um, so for the 20 or the 2009 Windsor Air Show, so it was the 100th anniversary of Power Flight for Canada. And so we had Chris Hadfield flying the uh, F-86. And so a bunch of us at the FBO got our photos taken with him in front of the Sabre. And then we all got our photo, like it was a group photo, then all individual photos. So it was just before he went up to the space station and uh, so after he came back down, he did like a big speaking tour across the country and ended up getting front row seats. So if you got the first like two rows or two or three rows of that speaking engagement, you got to have dinner with him as well. And got to like a meet and greet. And so I took that photo of him and I in front of the Sabre to have him autograph it. And as soon as he seen it, he knew that it was the Windsor Air Show. He like, he remembered it like right, like, yeah, it was just for to have somebody like that who's still very humbled and very still very down to earth for all his accomplishments to be like, yep, I remember that was at the 2009 Windsor Air Show was like without seeing any of the background, without anything, it was just him and I in front of the jet and just him remembering it was incredible. I still have that photo and those tickets hanging up in my house today. And yeah, it's, yeah that was another very, very memorable one I had. I'd say I'll touch on sort of the Ed Robertson one first because eventually you get to the point where you just can't ask the guy like, "Sorry, but who are you?" Like it's everyone else. Is yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, everyone yeah, it's else like is that, responding um, over it, but you've been with them long enough and haven't had that reaction, so you kind of can't say like, "I'm really sorry, but who are you?" <laughs> yeah, essentially, just like that. Um, that meme from uh, Parks and Rec with Andy being like, "I've been I've been in this so long now, I'm afraid to ask." <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, that was one of those. Um, and then probably the only other most memorable one was um, touch, going back a little bit, saying how I got my start, just getting that email from the chief pilot at that one company being like, hey, we want you, we want you to be our pilot or 180 pilot. And just being like, yep, I, I made it. So those, I think those three out of a lot of my memories are uh, probably the top, definitely the top five. There's a, there's a few other ones from some air shows that I probably shouldn't say, so I'm not. I'll just say they're very memorable, and uh, yeah, we'll go and that there. We'll end it with that, and I look forward to sitting down with you in 35 years to hear all about those stories, uh, especially the ones that we're not sharing here, and then all the stories. <laughs> well, I hope I hope I got a lot more stories and a lot more wisdom to impart on either you or the next generation of pilots. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our <laughs> listeners find you on social media? 
Uh, yeah, so right now, uh, listeners, if they want, they can check out our company website, and that's just canadianflyandfishing.ca. And if they want to get in touch with me, um, my email is jordan at canadianflyandfishing.ca. Uh, right now, I'm working on getting a new Instagram page started, more outdoorsy, more flying stuff. So uh, once that's up, I'll let you know, and you can add that in the comments afterwards. We'll be sure to have all those links in the episode description for our listeners. Jordan Noonan, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Laura, for having me. It's been a great time. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.